I appreciate that, Mike. You use all the prayer I can get. Me, this week, my prayers have primarily been focused on you um, because of what, I'm, what you're going to hear today. Um, the, the Word of God is um, everything that we, that we just heard, you know, from Craig and, um, and from Mike, and um, it, it is life-giving. That is the IV uh, for the Christian uh, that keeps us uh, living, um, that keeps us moving. Um, I find uh, it does so many things. It blesses us, it grows us, it encourages us, it gives us hope, um, but it also straightens us out. And uh, I don't know about you, but I need that. I need to be straightened out um, over and over again, sometimes daily. Um, and I want to let you in on what we're doing because this is going to look a little funky. We just got through uh, the seven letters to the seven churches and we're stopping. We're not going. I had a couple of people come up and say, you're going to keep going through Revelation, right? And it's like, no, uh, we kind of just wanted to look at the church there. And um, uh, a couple things happened during that time. As you know, we were rotating pastors through. Uh, we found and most of the people found that that was a real blessing um, for us to do. And so we want to continue to do that. And so um, we're going we're gonna to stay on that trajectory of you guys getting the different pastors moving through at the same, me, uh, Chad Brent, uh, moving through every three weeks, you'll see one of us. It was a blessing for us to see the people in both locations. And we heard from both locations, it was a blessing to them to see all of us. So um, having said that, leading up to the seven letters in Revelation, Brent was already going through the book of First Peter. And so what that means is that we now are just going to jump in, meaning me and Chad, with him where he left off in 1 Peter. So we're coming into the middle of a book here, basically, or a little under the middle of the book, which is not ideal uh, for us here. Um, but up there, uh, they've gone through the whole thing, and we just didn't want to ruin it and throw it off. So here's what I would suggest. Everything that Brent has taught up to this point in 1 Peter is recorded on our website. Go listen to it. Um, all the sermons are there, um, but we're going to come in in chapter 2, um, verse 13, and I did not pick this. This is not where I picked to come in. Um, I didn't even pick me to preach this. This was something the other guys did, um, and I found it to be extremely convicting for me as I've been looking at it over the last week, and this is part of the reason why I've been praying for you guys, um, because... I kind of understand our demographic, especially here in Lapine, as far as the kind of people that we have um, and the way that we think and the way that we live and the way that we believe and the kind of the attitude that we have. It's part of the reason why we live in a place like Lapine. Um, There's kind of this don't tread on me type type attitude down here in South County. and I was extremely convicted um, by going through this this week and I, I, I pray that we will be humble enough to see what God has to say to us, to examine ourselves by what God has to say to us, and to make corrections where they're needed. That's all I'm asking. That's all I'm hoping for here. Um, I know that there may be kickback. I know that there may be emails, that there may be phone calls, that there may be even people, I hope not, that leave and don't come back. Um, I am available. I want you to know that I love you. That's why I'm going to teach this the way I'm going to teach this, is because of what I love you. It's because I, I believe that God's always right, and we're always wrong. And so we need to shift 
we need to shift according to him and not according to these deep convictions we have wherever they come from. Um, so let me do that again. God, I pray, um, I pray your spirit upon your people this morning, God. I pray your spirit upon me. We know that one of the fruits of being a follower, a disciple of you, is that we are low in spirit, that we are humble, that we are teachable, that we are correctable, that we are meek. And I pray for these to be the fruits that come out of this place today as a result of listening to your voice. And so help us, God, to hear you and to be willing to follow what it is that we hear. And I ask it to the glory of your name. Amen. All right, First Peter. Like I said, you guys can go back and hear all these sermons leading up to this point, chapter two, verse 13 uh, through 17 is where we're gonna be today. Um, Pastor Brent um, has them all recorded there, but I'm gonna give you Peter in a nutshell. Here's the first epistle of Peter in a nutshell. How is the Christian to live in a hostile, oppositional world? That's it. That's what the, the whole subject and purpose of this letter is. How are we, followers of Jesus, to live in a hostile and oppositional world? What does that look like? What should our conduct be? How can we do it? And this is where my heaviness lies today. <laughs> Let's go ahead and read the text. Verse 13, chapter two. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors, as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This text is challenging to me for two reasons. Number one, because I love rebellion. I've been rebellious ever since I can remember. Uh, it's one of my gifts. I'm really good at it. Um, as a young kid, even as a little kid, I mean, my parents couldn't contain me. My grandparents couldn't contain me. If they told me I couldn't do something, I made it my business to make sure I did it. Um, I, 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 um, I love rebellion. I'm a rebel through and through. In fact, that's part of the reason I'm a, I, I'm a, I'm a Jesus freak and a Christ follower. That's, if I'm going to be totally honest with you, part of the attraction to me, to Christianity, is that rebellious spirit. It's that we're, we're something contra to what everybody else is. We are counterculture, okay? Um, the second reason why this, this text is a challenge to me is because I hate submission. I love, rebe or love rebellion, hate submission. Anyone else with me? All right, cool. Um, I, I love rebellion because I don't like people telling me what to do. I'm not down with that. It's not something that, that sits uh, naturally with me, natively in me, all right? And I hate submission because I equate it with weakness. If I put myself under, which is all submission means, to put yourself under, 
If I put myself under somebody or something, to me that says you're weak. That's not what God says. I hate it even more, submission, when I'm asked to do it with someone or something that I don't agree with, that I don't even get down with, right? That, that I think is not worthy of being submitted to. Then, it's, then, then it's, it's twice as hard to put myself under that person or thing or organization or institution. And so once again, like you've heard us say before, this sermon that I'm preaching today is for me first. It always is. It's for me first. I'm not coming here. I don't, I don't think I'm better than you. I don't think I'm a better Christian than you. I don't think I struggle less at this stuff than you do. I know I struggle majorly in this stuff. I wrestle with this stuff within myself. And so I need God to help me. And I need him and have been asking him all week to help you. Because this is, this is hard stuff. This is stuff that, that runs against our grain right here. Okay. What I've found is that it's very common for the Christian community to be amongst the most vocal and hostile when it comes to anti-government banter and hate. We can get downright noisy and nasty and rowdy and just critical with our vocalization of them. And I have been forced through this text to ask myself why. Why does our that hate and that rebellion from the Christian toward the government, where, where does that come from? Why do we have that so strongly? Is it even Christian? Like, are, are, are we getting it here? Is that why the Christian community is so hostile towards human institutions? Or is it American? Is it don't tread on me attitude coming out? My hope today is that we may not be found opposing God on something while thinking that he's pleased with it. Verses 13 and 14, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to emperors supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. The phrase... In all this, and of course, we're, we're, we're talking in a civil sense here. This is really why God has, has implemented, created, instituted governments is for uh, civilian purposes. It's actually so that, like we've said before, you and I can play in the sandbox together, right? Because otherwise, we would not play well in the sandbox together if we didn't have these basic things in place. So, so it, it doesn't matter that they're Christian or not Christian. That's not God's concern or Peter's concern. It's to Christianize the human institutions that God puts there. They're there to do one thing, and that's to keep us all playing well in the sandbox together. Therefore, therefore, are good. They're for our good. If you've seen Lord of the Flies, you know it. You know the rest of the story. That's what it would look like. The phrase that catches my attention most in reading this verse is the phrase, for the Lord's sake. Do you see that there? For the Lord's sake. And, and what that does is it takes this, the, the purpose of submission to these human institutions from being about the man, from being about 
uh, us or, or the man in, in that office, and it places our obedience to subjection front and center before God. Before God. In other words, that subjection to human institutions has a real value here rather than just here. It's for his namesake that we submit. For his namesake. The testimony of him, the testifying of him. This tells me that my willingness and my ability to be subject to that which exists is something that he's extremely interested in as far as how I conduct myself between these institutions. It tells me that how I perform and conduct myself within, around, and under the political, social arena that I find myself in means a great deal to him because it directly reflects upon him. And not only does it directly reflect upon him, but if I am found to be rebellious, I find here, or hostile, or downright defiant to those human authorities and institutions, I'm actually found to be in defiance of him. I'm actually opposing God. Let me read you another passage real quick. You don't need to turn there. You can jot it down, look at it, look at it later. Um, this one really doesn't need um, any commentary. It's, uh, it's pretty clear what it says. It's found in Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, listen to this one, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. God cares about this. God cares about how we come under the human institutions that he's placed above us. And I know if you're like me, you're thinking, yeah, but he's not speaking to our situation. He's not talking about Biden. He's not talking about Governor Brown. He's not talking about the progressive left and all its godless whack jobs that promote evil and change the rules. And I would say, yes, he is. Very much so. Yes, he is. I know that it's difficult for you and I, as a free people, to get out of ourselves and to get out of the time and the context that we live in, but we must, so that we can hear what God is saying to us. These words were written, when they were written by Peter, to a church at the time with a ruling government and authorities and institutions that dwarf the government that we're under. They don't even compare in wickedness, in godlessness, in corruption, they don't even compare. What these guys were under is far worse than what you and I have ever seen or are even beginning to see. And he's telling them, submit for the sake of God. Submit to the sake of God, for the sake of God. It was far worse, far more evil, far more godless, far more corrupt. How can it be that God would put a people contrary to him in power? That seems to be maybe the dilemma in our minds when we look at something. How would it be that God would actually uh, preordain, that God would elect somebody into power over his people that is contrary to him? And, and, and the, the only answer I have for you is for his own narrative, for his own purposes, 
for his own grand plan. See, God doesn't owe us an explanation on everything he does. But we owe him our cooperation in everything he asks for. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? We need to ask ourselves as a church this right now because we, we are moving into oblivion morally. We all see it coming. Do you trust him? Just as the devil, Satan, is God's devil, the government is God's government. They are subject to him. This seems hard to believe, but if, again, if you have a complaint, um, please take it up with scripture. Um, and, and I am happy um, to talk some of this out if we need to. But I, I, can't, I can't help that what I see, especially as I've looked through this and exhausted the scriptures on this this week, that this is simply the truth of what he wants from us. The bottom line is this. These verses are making clear to us that the, the powers that be, as evil as they may be, are not there by chance. They are not there by Satan. They are not there by ballot count or, or messed up ballot count. They are ultimately there by him. By him. The question is, are we willing to accept that? And by accept, I mean submit. I mean place ourselves under that which God has commanded us to. Verse 15, Peter goes on to say, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. See, foolish people are always going to put us under a microscope, right? They're always going to try to look for the flaw that excuses their unbelief by finding a reason to discredit ours. And, 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 and sometimes we make it really easy for them. Sometimes they don't have to put us under a microscope. They can spot it a mile away sometimes from the Christian community from a distance because we're loud and we're proud of our disdain for the human institutions that exist. We're so loud and proud about how right we are and how wrong they are, how righteous we are and how evil they are, which is an extremely ugly flaw to flaunt regarding a people who are supposed to be known for their loving kindness and gentleness and compassion and patience and humility. Our conduct matters. Our character matters. Our response to wrongdoing, which we're all seeing right now, matters. And our response to authorities, even the most wicked ones, matter. How we respond, how we live under them, preaches a sermon to a watching world. It says something. What kind of product are we putting out there in our daily lives for people to consume? It matters greatly to God. And so we must ask ourselves, is it one that puts forth the sweet aroma of Christ? Or is it the nasty taste of worldliness and pride and death, which is something they're already well acquainted with? That's what their kind does. Are we like them? But the real bottom line of what Peter's saying here in verse 15 is this. If they're going to hate us for who and what we believe, let them. That's fair game. But let's not give them a reason to hate us for our bad conduct. For our character. Our bad behavior. 
our self-righteousness, our inability and unwillingness to submit to the most basic authorities that God, our God, has put in place. Let's not give them that reason. It is by living upright, submissive, godly lives that the onlooker is silenced. It is in our response to the mistreatment and the opposition of everything we value and hold dear that the non-believing world sits up and takes notice they may even be given sight by the way we conduct ourselves. They may even see. We just talked about this this week with apologetics is what we were talking about at Table Talk. And one of the apologetics that we have is a relational apologetic. And it's of utmost importance when we're giving a defense for the reason for the hope that lives within us that it's a relational one because what the non-believing world has a ultimate problem with is a relationship problem. They have a severed relationship with God. But you and I, brothers and sisters, we have a mended, a fixed relationship with God. And what that looks like here should make a difference. It should speak loud about how we live and conduct ourselves here. We're showing them what a relationship, what a right relationship looks like with our Lord. It's one of our greatest apologetics that we have. Verse 16 says, um, leave, uh, live as a people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And, 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 and maybe we can kind of go, oh, finally, here we go. Now he's, now he's talking to the American. I, I saw the word... I saw the word free there, you know, the free people in the land of the free. And, and he's not talking to us or about us specifically. He's not addressing Americans. He's addressing the spiritual state. He's expect, uh, addressing the spiritual state, not a geographical one, not our nationality, not our constitutional rights which seems to be on par these days with scripture for some Christians. And they're not. Let me read you the constitutional rights of a Christian. You have the right to be poor in spirit. You have the right to mourn with those who mourn. You have the right to be meek. You have the right to hunger and thirst for righteousness sake. You have the right to be merciful. You have the right to be pure in heart. You have the right to be peacemakers. And you have the right to be persecuted, even put to death for righteousness sake. Do you see the difference between our national constitution and the Jesus given, the Christ given constitution? One goes this way. It's all about what we get. It's all about our rights as an individual. And don't take that from me. And don't get me wrong. I love them. I've said this before and I'll say it again. If, if I could have chosen if God would have asked me before I popped out of my mom's womb, like, dude, by the way, like, what country do you, which country do you want? And just put out a map in front of me. I would have been like, I want this one. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I dig and I'm down with the fact that God put me here and I thank him all the time for it. But this is not my promised land. This is not my city on a hill. This is not Israel's replacement. Thank you. Like a lot of evangelicals think. 
And our Constitution is not an extension of Scripture. It's not a new revelation. That Constitution feeds us, our national one. It tells us all the things that we have a right to do. Jesus' Constitution feeds this way. You have the right to be about God and others first. They're opposing. They're different. Those are our rights, our God-given rights at the end of the day. They're not the same. We are a spiritually free people, which means that we are no longer oppressed by sin. We are no longer bound to the power and the effects and the dictation of Satan's work on us through sin. We are no longer in bondage to it. We are no longer at its mercy that we have to conduct ourselves the way that sin tells us to conduct ourselves. We are now free, according to Peter in verse 16, to do what's right, to act in a right way, to respond in a right way, to submit in a right way. We have been spiritually set free by the blood of Christ that we no longer have to obey it, but we can now live for, in, and by righteousness. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? The challenge is that because we know this, we can sometimes act as if we, or, or think as if, um, or live as if we're above the existing people, places, and things in that newfound freedom that Christ has given us, and, and we're not. Peter wants to make sure that we rebuke that thought. See, we have been made free to do right before others to righteousness, which means we can now walk in a manner reflective and pleasing to the one who bought us out of slavery, rebellion, and hostility. We are not above the governmental authorities now because we belong to the highest authority that exists, but rather we are now better at being subject to and submissive to the government authorities that exist because we belong to the highest authority that exists. That being said, the one who puts them there. And, I, and I'm hoping you can see the, the difference in this. Verse 17 says, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God. Honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. We see that word honor here come up twice. First, it's used as something that we should have for everybody. 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 Believe it or not, believer or not, wicked or not, Republican or not, we are to honor everybody. Next, it's used for the emperor or the king or the president or the ruler. Believer or not, Wicked or not, Republican or not. And what does honor mean? It means this. This is what it is in the Greek, a fixed value or a reverence. There is a fixed value or reverence for all the people around us and then for our ruler, whoever that may be. And I think the question might be, is that even possible? 
Can we value something or have reverence for someone that we do not agree with or like? And the answer is, yeah, yeah, we can, we can do this. We can do this. Um, I think that we all had, how many of you rode the bus to school when you were little tykes? Yeah. So I'm sure that we all had that bus driver at some point which was like the meanest, most like hateful, impatient, like they were in the wrong business. You know what I'm saying? Like the last thing that they should be allowed to do is drive a busload of kids around. Like horrible. And I remember having ones and, and, and one in particular that would stop that bus every day over anything, sometimes even nothing. But he was always threatening to pull over. And when he would pull over, he would scream and he would go through this whole thing. And I mean, school would, would get out at 2.30 and we wouldn't get home till five sometimes, living a couple blocks away because this dude was stopping the bus so much and just smoking people. But I cared, I honored, I had a fixed value and a reverence for that jerk because that dude drove the bus. A lot of lives depended on it. He had a task and a job and a responsibility that deserved reverence and honor. Whether I agreed with him as a person or not, whether I would have communicated things the way that he did or not. And because of that, I honored him. And do you know how I honored him? By not being a disruptor or defiant, or disrespectful, or loud, or rebellious on his bus. That's how I did it. And this is basically what Peter's telling us. We can honor and have reverence for people we don't even agree with, that are even contra to us and contra to God, by the way that we respond, by the way that we ride on the bus. And the Christian community should be the quietest ones, the best behaved on the bus. And some of you are rolling your eyes, shaking your head. You just can't understand how that would be possible that I would say such a thing. And I get it. There's a lot of Christians these days that just want to fight. And they think that's what Jesus looks like. Now, Jesus is going to come back and he's gonna go to blows. Like, that's his deal. We just get to follow and spectate. We don't need to run around thinking that we need to cause fights everywhere right now. I get it. I get that we live in a contrary world. I get it. Does it frustrate me? Yeah, it bothers me every day to watch evil called good and good called evil. But that's not a fight that I have been called to fight by myself. I am called to be respectful underneath that while performing my conviction, which is the righteousness of God. I'm not here to convince non-believers to look more like me, to look more godly. I'm here to share the gospel of Christ so that hopefully God will cause them to be reborn into something they are not. We do that, part of our testimony is how we live, how we conduct ourselves on the bus but God has put people here to 
with the task and the responsibility of making sure that bus goes from point A to point B. And how we act during that, that ride, during that transit, matters. It matters. When we do this, when we behave well, even to someone that doesn't deserve it, we are ultimately honoring God and bringing honor to God. So when we jump on our social media and we make derogatory remarks or snide remarks or perform sarcastic verbal drive-bys about our president and about our governor and about our local authorities, we are dishonoring God, no matter how right or true our position may be. That's not the way you do it. You look just like everybody else. When we do this, we're just part of the problem on the school bus. And the people of God shouldn't be. See, we testify of a perfect kingdom by how well we live in a faulty one. I'll say that again. We testify of a perfect kingdom by how well we live in a faulty one. There's a difference between suffering honorable persecution and deserving every bit of the persecution that we get from others. You ever known these people, these Christians? It seems like there's a lot of American evangelicals right now who are just wanting, like I said, a fight over things that shouldn't matter to people who have their eyes firmly fixed on a future kingdom and calling it persecution. In fact, it's such a misplaced rebellion that it's even starting to turn against its own. It's even starting to turn inside the church with teeth. As of late, and I mean like the last six, eight months, I have received more persecution, dirty looks, dirty words by Christians, my own kind, than I ever have by anybody outside the church. And it's not because I ain't out there evangelizing and talking about Jesus, because I am. The reason for it is because of my submissive, quote-unquote, passive stand on the election, on COVID, and on the general national slide into moral oblivion. I have been called a sellout. I have been called a sheeple. I have been told that my head is stuck in the sand. I have been told that I am unpatriotic. Some of you are thinking that right now. I have been told that I am the problem with Christianity. And God knows that I have wrestled and questioned myself over this because I I don't want to be found on the wrong side of God. I don't want to be found misrepresenting him. And so I have questioned and checked and rechecked my theology and my doctrine over this because I don't want to be a sellout. I want to do what my Lord wants from me. That's all I want, and I hope you guys know that. Whether you agree or not on all that's coming out of my mouth, I think some of you have been here long enough and hurt our heart long enough to know that we want to be found right in him. That's it. As I'm thinking this to myself and I'm questioning myself and I'm, and I'm saying, gosh, am I off? There's, there's this passage I can't stop um, seeing in my mind. There's this picture that I can't stop seeing in my mind. And, and it's this one that, 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 I, that we find in Isaiah 53. 
which says, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up, we're, we're talking about Jesus here. This is Jesus. He grew up before them like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, that we should pay any attention to him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Ready? All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone his own way. The Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. This is where it gets crazy, crazy. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he, does anyone know the next line? Opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, Jesus. And like a sheep, there's the word. Huh. Like a sheep that's before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is all that kept going through my brain as I'm wrestling with this. Is this picture of the most powerful being that's ever existed. I want to ask you a couple questions. How do you feel about that? That Jesus. Does that embarrass you? Does it make you ashamed of him? I mean, after all, you, you worship and follow him. Does that make you ashamed of him? Does he appear weak? Was he weak? A coward, a sheeple. For me, if that's what it means to be one, then so be it. That's what I am. Whatever. I just want to be more like him. If Jesus, who is the God-man, submitted before a spiritually backwards government, mouth closed, not demanding his rights, unjustly put to death, all the while doing it with the greatest of conduct, character, and honor, so be it. That's my hero. I want to be like that. Not like what I'm seeing in the Christian community today. In fact, not only do I not see what Jesus did as a weakness, I see it as the ultimate display of power. Do you see that? The ultimate display of power. Do you remember Schindler's List? It's a horrible movie. The ugliest dude in that movie, I think it was Armin, Gorman. It was the dude that was put to oversee the concentration camp, right? And the dude was so sideways 
that he would get up in the morning and before he would even get his coffee or go to breakfast, he would grab his rifle, go out onto the balcony and pick a couple of Jews off. Like that's how he would start his day. Like they were field mice. And of course, Oscar Schindler comes in at one point and he's trying to befriend this dude to get something from him, right? And they had just, they were sitting around after a party that they were at and, and Armin was a little bit drunk and they start having this conversation and Armin says, control is power. You remember that conversation? To have power is to have control. And Schindler says, no, no, no. To have control is not power. Power is not control. Power is when you have every right to do something and you don't. That's power. You and I have the right to be meek, to be peacekeepers, to be submissive citizens that are a blessing to people that don't even deserve it. There's power in that. See, a lot of people, when investigating Jesus, are looking for the miracles. They're looking for the parting of the Red Sea and the burning of the bush, because that'll make them believe. And it won't. There was a huge population of people that lived when God lived on earth and watched everything he did and walked away. See, we don't have a problem with proof. That's not where the power is that's going to tip us over the line, right? The power is in the subtleties of suffering. It's in God who has no business suffering, unjustly suffering, choosing to submit and suffer so that you and I could have something we otherwise would not. That's how people are saved. That's a message when they see it and they hear it that makes people go, what is that? What kind of love is that? What kind of submission is that? And that's the power of God and salvation. It's in that subtlety of suffering that Jesus did not throw down. Is beyond, I don't know how he restrained himself, but the power is in the fact that he had every right to clean house, and he didn't. He didn't. And you and I were a result of that. You and I sitting here today, doing what we're doing, reading what we're reading, having the hope that we have, the future hope that we have, and a future glory, a right relationship with God instead of a broken one. All of that that you and I are sitting here enjoying is a result of Jesus submitting to a government that didn't deserve it. That's powerful. If you don't find this attractive, the fact that Jesus took up a crusade for others rather than his rights, then the truth is that you don't find Christianity attractive. And I'm sorry, but I don't know how else to say it. Because that is the heartbeat of Christianity. I don't know of any better way to clarify the heart of Christ than Christianity. 
If the thought of this submission before a people that don't deserve it disgusts you and causes you to disagree, then it's a good possibility that you have bought an American nationalistic gospel, not a Christian one. They are not the same. A don't tread on me gospel, not a father forgive them for they know not what they do gospel. Believe me when I say I do not take lightly these things that I'm saying to you. I do. Just like I said when we started, I get the repercussions of, of, of preaching sermons like this. It's not how you grow a church. It's just not. It's just putting a gun to my head. But this is what I've been put here for is to please God rather than man. I know that those people that God is saving, he's going he's, he's gonna to impart to them through spiritual eyes and ears, his voice. They're gonna know his voice. They're gonna know the shepherd's voice when they hear it. And this is the heart of Christianity. It doesn't matter what our country was. It doesn't matter what it has been. It doesn't matter what it was founded on. None of that's been promised to us. All that matters is the promises of Christ that he is bringing a kingdom that in every way transcends this one that exists now. If you believe this, then you are able to submit well to that which does exist now. The goal of the Christian is not to get our favorite candidate in office. The goal of the Christian is to live peaceably and honorably under whomever it is that we find in office. because that's what pleases God. Our submission to earthly authorities is not a weakness to our faith, it is a testimony to it. So suffer well, be patient in well-doing, for our reward is coming, our kingdom is coming, our Lord is coming to collect all that he's purchased through his sub submission. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for, for once in a while just, just um, giving the truth of the real gospel to us in, in maybe a slightly different light so that it, that, that it stands out uh, rightly so the way that it should from the other gospels that we're constantly inundated with. There is no story like yours. There is nobody like you. There is nobody that's loved the way you've loved, and there's nobody that's submitted the way that you've submitted. And so help us to be more like you. I pray, God, that that would be our only conviction and concern, that we must be more like you, that we must be conformed in the image of your glory. I thank you for this place. I thank you for your word, which straightens me out because I don't want to be crooked. I don't want to be off. I don't want to be in the wrong lane. I want to be right where you want me. And I thank you that your word is always faithful to bring us there. Amen.